Heavenly Father, once again, we're thankful for the privilege we have of studying your word. We're thankful for the accuracy that is there and for the, the amazing detail that we have and how we can pinpoint so many things so accurately from the Greek text of the New Testament and sometimes from the Hebrew of the Old Testament. It's very clear. And Father, we're not doing anything. We're not inventing anything. We're simply setting forth what Scripture says, and we're taking it literally, and we're keeping it in context. And it seems, Father, those answer so many questions and so much of what is done today from the pulpits across this country, across the world even, is are people that are not doing that. And no wonder there's such misunderstanding. May we, Father, always beware. May we always measure what we hear and see if it's being taken in context and being taken literally. And if it is, then we can have a pretty good assurance that it's probably going to be right. Father, bless this time now. May this be a profitable time. We ask in our Savior's name. Amen. I guess that's one of the things that... Uh, that we tend to, I know Kevin tends to emphasize it, some, Courtney does, I do, is context. You know, context makes or breaks you. About probably, I'm going to say 75% or more of the Bible, of the questions I get asked about Scripture, are answered by context, almost every time. Like the Matthew 5 question, that's, is it, is it millennial? Strictly by context. If you go back all the way into the fourth chapter, you'll see that Jesus started talking about the kingdom of the heavens after John the Baptist went to prison. Now the kingdom of the heavens is the kingdom that heaven rules over. And so then, having started to offer it, you have a message that lays out some of the laws for it. If you keep it in context, it follows so beautifully. But if you jump back and forth and say, well, now this is for the church, well, how does that fit against the fourth chapter? And what does it have to do with the change from the kingdom of the heavens to the kingdom of God? Well, they make them the same thing. And that's not being literal. And so it just, you just wind up balling everything together, putting it in a bag, in a grab bag, and say, let me take out what I like today. Oh, I like this verse today. Oh, I like this verse today. Well, if you do that, it's a surefire, it's a surefire remedy, a surefire guarantee that you're going to be carnal and ignorant. And it'll lead to carnality. Well, I don't want to get off on that, but we're, we're on page three of our notes. We're dealing with, with the scripture, and we're talking about the Bible. And I hope by the, as we get through this, you're going to realize what a remarkable treasure it is because our emphasis is going to be perhaps a little bit different than some of the traditional emphases because we want to push one idea that this is God's word. This is God's revelation. It's his word to man and it's from God's point of view. And that's why we see things so differently than the way we would think of them because we're seeing it from God's point of view. Now, we're looking at some of the... the uh, <clears throat> some of the important terms that we're going to use or at least are going to weigh in in our, in our study. And we're coming to one on, on page three, uh, truth. Now, truth, we started, we started to touch on this last week. But I want to talk about this, and I want to show you some of the reasons that truth is important in Scripture, some of the things that come because of Scripture being truth. Now, we said our definition is, uh, and this, my definition kind of is similar to lexicons. Once in a while, the lexicons get things really well. And sometimes... They don't, but when they do, uh, some of them do have this definition there, but this is something I've, I've seen on my own. You can see this, and we'll show you in a minute why we say that. But the word for, for truth, it translates a word, and I have the word G225 in there. If you use eSword, you can look this word up. You can see every place it's used. And if you don't have eSword and you're interested in it, talk to me afterwards, because eSword is the most remarkable tool, and there's one thing about it that you can't argue with. Free. Free is a very good price. It's my favorite price. If more things were free, I'd have more things in life. I'm going to get down to the car dealer and see if I can try that now. That probably won't do me any good. 
But so anyway, you can look this word up, and there's the Greek word if you want to see it and use it interlinear. Now, you'll notice this particular word. you notice if you look at the Greek word, there's the first letter on there looks like an A. Well, it's the Greek equivalent. And when you put that on some words, it's a negation of the word. And the actual word it comes from is a word that means something that is hidden. So this, so truth, the word for truth in the New Testament is really, literally, is something that isn't hidden, or it's reality. It's what really is. And when you stop and use that definition, when you look at when you look at John seventeen seventeen, we have it printed in your notes. It says, "Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. Sanctify them through thy reality. Thy word is." reality. Does that change how you think of it? It gives kind of a different twist to it. Scripture tells you what is real. And why that's so important is because if you listen to the TV and try to listen to the news and the media, you're not going to hear what is real. You're going to hear what people think. If you read textbooks and science, you're going to see what people think. But you're not necessarily going to see reality in some things. You know, I used to like to watch the History Channel. They used to have this, this one series on called The Universe. And I always liked astronomy before I was saved. And so I've watched it for a while. And in the last probably five, ten years, they've got so now that they're off into speculation. It's not science anymore. It's just weird speculation. It's not reality. They talk about multiple universes. You know, and they're talking about it now as though that's a fact. Where is there? Mary had a little lamb. That's about where they're at. I mean, that's where they are as far as I'm concerned. So... Uh, when you say the scripture is truth, you're saying that which is not hidden, that which is reality. And boy, the first thing that comes to mind is these 17 or 15 or 34 different genders or however many. That's not reality. It's just not reality. You can look at it. It's not hidden. You can tell there, there's only two genders. I mean, you just can't miss it. Well, anyway, so why do I say this word is important? Why do I say it means that is something not hidden. Well, look over at Luke chapter 4 and verse 25. You can see that this, that's what this word means as it's used. And I like to, whenever I give a word a definition, I like to give you at least one example of it, and sometimes two. Uh, and I could give you more, but one or two is usually enough. Because you'll find a few, sometimes you'll find a crystal clear example of what a word means, and that's where you show people. Now, in, in Luke chapter 4, and let's see. Um, okay, let's see. Verse 20, beginning of verse 22. And all bear him witness and wondered at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? And he, and he said unto them, You will surely say unto me this proverb, Physician, heal thyself. Whatsoever we have heard done in Capernaum, do here also. And, and he said, Verily I say unto you, No prophet is accepted in his own country. But I tell you of a truth. Many widows were in Israel in the days of Elias, when the heaven was shut up three years and six months, when great famine was throughout the land. Of a truth, many widows. Well, what is that? In reality. You could just put in a reality. You see, it's something that's not hidden. You could have gone around if you were there, and you could have gone through the land and looked, and it was there. You could see widows. So it's reality. So you look at that and say, wait a minute, that's, that's what this word means, reality. So that changes, in a sense, that changes how I look at Scripture when it says the word is true. It's telling you what is real. Now, I don't know about you folks, but somehow that sticks with me a little better if I say this is real. This is what's not hidden. This is the fact. This is what you can see. This is reality. Because people misuse the word truth like they do with a lot of other words. And so I, I, now, why is, would you say this word is important? 
Well, you know, there's one verse I want you to look at. This one is interesting. Look at John chapter 8. Now, I think if I asked you, uh, if I asked you individually, do you think that when Satan revolted back in, 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 in way, way back, back in Ezekiel 28, it's recorded, Isaiah 14, it's recorded, do you think Satan had a chance of success? Well, you know, looking at the text there, you really don't see the answer, but you know from the greater context of Scripture that Satan cannot defeat God. But you have something interesting here that just says, uh, look, look at what it says in John chapter 8, verse 44. Now, this is fascinating because this is spoken to the religious leaders of the day. I could, I could just imagine how they must have felt about this. And, of course, the eighth chapter ends up with them wanting to stone him anyway. He says, you are of your father the devil, and the lust of your father you will do. He was a murderer from the beginning and abode not in the truth, because there's no truth in him. When he speaks the lie, now, even the New King James misses this. When he speaks the lie, there's a definite article there in front of that word. The lie is a definite lie. It is something that Satan concocted on his own, that you can live independent from God, that you can decide what you deserve. You don't need God's help. That's essentially what the lie is. When he speaks the lie, he speaks it of his own, for he is a, a liar and a father of it. Now, what does that have to do with anything? He abode not in the truth. He was not living in reality. That's what it tells you. In other words, when Satan decided he would revolt, you remember what he said back in Isaiah 14? Well, let's, let's go back to Isaiah 14 just for a second. I want you to see this because it shows you the truth of Scripture. Uh, was Satan actually able to... Well, he was deceived. In his mind, he thought that he could do this. But Jesus said he wasn't standing in the truth. He was not operating according to reality. Now, what did Satan say? In Isaiah chapter 14, beginning at verse 12... How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground, which did weaken the nations? For you have said in your heart. Oh, wait a minute. You said in your heart. Is that a sin? Uh, no, he said in his heart. He's made up his mind to do it. What does that make it? Trespass. He's trespassed at this point. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into the heaven. Now, a uh, little Hebrew here, because I've taught Hebrew and I, and I like teaching the language a little bit. It's not saying, I will ascend. It says, I am ascending. It's I am. In other words, he was going right now. This, I believe, you're looking at a moment in time when you can see Satan going into action. I'm going right now. He's getting ready to go. He's got his backpack, folks, and he's loaded him on, he's loaded him on his dolly, and he's taking him to the aircraft, and he's ready to go. He's going right now. He says, I am ascending into heaven. I am exalting my throne above the stars of God. I am setting on the mount of the congregation the size of the earth. I am, I am ascending above the cloud, heights of the clouds. Now, this last one is very interesting. This is a Hebrew phrase that I don't know why it was never picked up, but it's a middle voice. What he says is, I will make myself like the Most High. That's what he said in his heart. Is that the truth? Is this guy standing in reality? This created being is going to make himself like... Now, he didn't say he's going to make himself God, but he's going to make himself like the Most High. Is that even a possibility? Not once he's... He's already, he's already trespassed. So he's already perverted. He's already a warped being. A warped being is going to make himself like God. Is that reality? You see why that word is so important? And why Scripture tells you that? You know, you might, you might wonder. I mean, obviously we know. I mean, we know what the Scripture says, how the Bible is going to end. But just looking at that, 
back in Isaiah 14, you might wonder, well, did he really think he could succeed? Well, yeah, he apparently did. Because he does say, I will make myself. That's the give. I wish they would have translated it that way. That's one of my frustrations. There are a lot of things in Hebrew you don't see because they're not translated. There's another one in Psalm 51. Ask me about that after class. Psalm 51, there's some interesting things there that are not picked up that would really help your understanding of Psalm 51. It's a little bit different than you might think it is. It's a little more intense. And more, David was more desperate than this. The psalm sounds desperate. You don't know how desperate he was. He was really, he was more desperate than you'd ever believe, unless you've understood it. But as you look at here, it tells you where Satan is. Was he standing in reality? He's already, he's trespassed. So he's already a changed being. He's already begun to be warped. According to Ezekiel 28, his wisdom was corrupted. Is he standing in truth? Is he seeing things like they really are? No, it's not. You see why it's so important, this word? And, it's in, and you find it in the Scripture, so Scripture tells us. Now, there's, there's another thing, and this one I think is very important, and I think, Pastor, you'll like this one. If you're still in John 8, I want you to look back just a little bit, and uh, is back into verse 30. In John chapter 8, verse 30. As he spake these words, many believed on him. Then Jesus said to those Jews which believed on him, If you continue in my word, then you are my disciples indeed. And you shall know, future tense here, you in the future shall know the truth. This was not going to happen until after the day of Pentecost. Paul's going to write about it. You shall know the truth in the future, and the truth shall make you free. So you shall know the truth. You shall know reality. What's the reality? Well, the reality is, in verse 34, Jesus answered them, well, in verse 33, this, this now, people have wondered, people put verse 33 and said, these the people he spoke to that believe in him, they're saying this to him. No, they're not saying this to him. If you go back in context, you have the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the religious leaders, every time Jesus speaks, they interrupt him, they insult him, they accuse him, they try to make him look stupid. They interrupt and say this, because it's so ridiculous. Look what they said. They said unto him, We be Abraham's seed, and were never in bondage to any man. How sayest thou, you shall be made free? Never been in bondage to anybody? Give me a break. What about Egypt? What about Rome, who has their the jackboot on their throat? They, can't, they couldn't even put Christ to death without getting permission. That's why they went to Herod, or to, rather to uh, Pontius Pilate. They didn't go there because they liked the guy. They went there because they wanted to commit. They didn't have any freedom to do that. They could do some things... But anything big, capital punishment. So here, that's so. Th- this is not the people that believe on him. This is so. If anybody ever says that, I read a commentary once, and they said that these people who were believing in him turned around and said this to him. That doesn't make any sense because that sounds antagonistic, and it is. Keep it back with the people who are speaking it. It's you go through the eighth chapter of John. It's just a fun chapter. You see, every time Jesus says something, these people that these they're harassing him, they're hassling him, they hate him. And so they're persecuting. That's really what persecution means. The word for persecution means to harass. The 8th chapter shows you tons of it. So that's who it is. But so in verse 34, it says, Verily I say unto you, or verily, verily, I say unto you. Now, that word verily, verily, when you see that, John's the only person that uses verily, verily in the, in the, of the gospel writers. It means amen, amen, or I believe, I believe. And in looking at all the places it's used, when you see that, verily, verily, it means this is something that you can't argue with. This is no, no questions asked, no discussion possible. Why would I say that? Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a man be born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Is that, a, is that an absolute fact? 
I hope you think so. Because <laughs> if you're not born again, you're not going to go. So this is an absolute fact. So here it is. This is what the truth is. The truth is, whosoever commits sin is a servant of sin. Now there's a problem here. Whosoever commits the sin is a servant of the sin. I believe if you check, am I correct in both of those? You have an article in front of sin, uh, Pastor? You have a definite article in front of them. The sin. He's talking about the sin nature. So the truth of the matter is that nobody can overcome the sin nature without knowing what Christ is going to do, without reading what it has in Romans chapter 6, verse 11. You reckon yourself dead to the sin nature. The truth is no one can break this. this, You can try anything you want to. I remember reading a book by Clyde Naramore, who was a Christian psychologist, which... Probably, Pastor, I'm beginning to think that's a contradiction in terms. Christian, psychologist, I'm beginning to think that may be a contradiction. But his way of handling the old nature, you know what it was? It wasn't any different than an unsafe psychologist. One of the things he said about losing your temper. Now, some of you folks may not have had a problem with losing your temper, but I did. (laughs) I'll speak for me, I did. And so I read that one section when I got his book, and I, I might still have it somewhere in my well, maybe I had enough sanctification to throw it away. I think I might have gotten rid of it. But his way of handling temper, you know what it was? You count to ten. Are you kidding me? I saw that one time in a Donald Duck cartoon. I'm serious. There was a Donald Duck cartoon where he was learning to control his temper, and he was counting to ten, and he was And I thought, I can identify a Donald Duck more than I can identify a Clyde Naramore. <laughs> Donald Duck was more Mike style. just blow up anyway. But you see... This is the reality. The scripture is real. The reality is, if you want to overcome the sin nature, you have got to do what scripture says. That's the reality. It's, you won't find it anywhere else. You won't get it from any psychologist. I don't care how many different mental illnesses they have now. I guess they have introverts now. They have introverts as being a mental disorder. So if you guys are an introvert, anybody's an introvert out there, you're now considered to have a mental illness. Did you know that? I think if you're a psychologist, you have a mental illness. This, those are the people that have it. But you see what we're saying. So when you, when you look at this, if you don't know the truth about what it says in Romans 6, there's the truth that tells you that's the only place, that's the reality. You want to know the reality of how to overcome the sin nature? It's in this book. It's in this book. And that makes it very important. Now, there's, there's a number of things in there, too. Uh, one other thing, I guess, we could, we could uh, write this for a while, but if you look over at John chapter 14... There's a, there's a verse that people quote frequently, and, and uh, it's, it's a verse we're all probably quite familiar with. In John 14, verse 6, I'll bet, every, I'll bet most of you people, or at least many of you can probably quote this one. It's, uh, Jesus said unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. What is reality? The reality is the only way to God. It's real. The reality is the only way to God is through Jesus Christ today. That tells you that all these religions are wrong. Why would I say they're all wrong? Because the truth is you come through Christ. If you come some other way by your own works, by, and they all basically come down to being your own works, anything outside of Christianity, if you look at them, no matter how you want to look at it, we were talking about some of that on the way in about somebody that wrote a Christmas carol that didn't believe in the deity of Christ. And you say, well, how could a man like that all be in the ministry? He was. He was a pastor that wanted that song. And 
how could you be in the ministry? Well, you have do-gooders and, and the way you're going to bring in the kingdom and you're going to teach morals. Jesus was a great moral teacher. And so you've got to go out there and you've got to change society. It's what we call the social gospel. And it's nothing new. And so that's one th- way people want to do it. But is that reality? It says, Jesus said, I am the reality. You come through me. Scripture tells us reality. Without that, there's, there's no hope. There's no hope for the sin nature. If you want to know, uh, go over to Romans 7 for a moment. I want to show you something. Uh, people have wondered what it would be like to be a believer in the Old Testament when you didn't have some of the, the benefits we have by grace. And I think you can see here. But I want to also show you something because here's the, here's, this is also reality. If you don't know how to overcome the flesh, if you don't do what it says in Romans 6 and verse 11 where it says, reckon yourself dead to the sin nature but alive unto to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. If you don't do that, what, what, kind of a, what kind of a life will you have? Well, you know, I think Paul describes it pretty well here. Let's see. Let's see. Okay, let's start down here. Verse 15. For that which I allow not, that, uh, not for that which I do, for that which I do allow not, for what I would, that I do not, but what I hate, that I do. Would, you, would that be true? Of most of us, yeah, wouldn't it be true? Uh, you know, it's like being on a diet. And you, uh, a good example is being on a diet. You have a bag of cookies in the house, and you're on a diet. What happens? That bag of cookies gets bigger and bigger and bigger, and pretty soon it takes up the whole kitchen. And pretty soon you say, "I'm going to attack those cookies before they attack me." Some excuse like that will work. You know, any excuse. And, and so, but that's the reality of it all. So what would happen? Here's reality. You want to know reality? There's, it's cut and dried, folks. We either do what the spiritual life said. There's, it's not an option, you know. And Brother Scott teaches the Christian life on, on every. It's at eight thirty. You want to, if you're not in on the class, it's a good class to be in on. It's not, Scott. You offer them, you offer them opportunities. Say, or rather, options. You say, well, now you can do this, but you could also do this. Well, only in the sense that uh, Jesus says this is the best thing for you. This is the best thing for you. <laughs> yeah. If you want to do it. So in other words, you don't have to. You don't have to reckon yourself dead to the sin nature. No, but the reality is if you don't, you're going to find yourself living in Romans 7. Living in the sin nature. Yeah, you're going to be living in the sin nature. That's the truth. Now, without the scripture, you wouldn't know that. But you see how important the scripture is and how important it is that it's the truth? It's telling you reality. It's telling you what really is in your life, in this world we live in. And the truth is, when we talk to unsaved people that want to earn their way to heaven or do anything else, the truth is... The reality is that Jesus is the way. He is the truth, the reality. You don't come that way, you don't come. You don't come at all. So, boy, I'll tell you, this, that's important. So, so then that in mind, when Jesus, in praying to the Father, said in John 17, 17, he said, Sanctify them through thy truth, thy reality. Thy word is reality. If we want to be sanctified, it's in the Scripture. If we don't want to be sanctified then we don't have to pay attention. And if we don't pay attention to Scripture, are we going to be sanctified? Are we going to do it on our own? The truth of the matter is, reality is, no, you're not. You have to do what Scripture says. You know, I think sometimes we can be guilty as Christians, and, and I'll have to confess, I've been there myself and seen it. I've, by the grace of God, I'm trying to get away from it. But I have seen, and uh, I'm, I'm sure some others have seen, those who think 
that knowledge is enough. I know what this is. I know what it is. But the truth is, you have to do it. You have to use it. Just knowing all about the Christian life isn't going to do you much good. It's when you actually say, yeah, it says I should reckon myself dead in my sin age of Romans 6. I don't want to live in Romans 7. Well, that's the truth. But now, am I doing it? That's where we get ourselves into trouble. So sanctify me through thy, thy truth, thy, thy, through thy reality. Thy word is reality. Now, point number three on here is, becomes very interesting. This becomes important. And this is one verse, and I think I mentioned this last week. But if I was going to say, ask somebody that was a true born-again believer that was questioning whether there were errors because there's a bunch of so-called scholars, if we can call them that, that claim that there are errors in the Bible. We have a nice quote coming up when we talk in the, in the next major section after we get out of this section. But uh, is there one verse that I could use? You know, I love it when you can pick up one verse and, and shoot a whole, uh, and a whole big, long bunch of hot air that someone comes up with, you know. And you can, because if the scripture is reality, then can there be any errors in it? Can reality be wrong? <laughs> ask, ask yourself a question. Can reality be wrong? Can it, can it be wrong to say that the, the gravity works every time you drop something and falls to the ground? No, it's not. Right? That, that, that doesn't work all the time. Oh, wait a minute. Reality has some errors in it? No. So if scripture is reality, and Jesus said your word is reality, now either if we believe him, now of course there's the unsaved are not going to believe that. But for those of us who believe it, if a Bible believer questions you, say, well, I'm not so sure about the Bible, then bring them here and say, well, what does this say? Just like what Pastor said over here. What does this mean then? If, if thinking in your mind makes you guilty, if, if being tempted and, and getting to the point where you're just tempted itself makes you sin, then, well, what does this mean? And if, if there's errors in the Bible, then what does John 17, 17 really say? Well, it's just John's opinion, I guess. It's just not much good. So, it's, so if, we don't have, if we don't have reality, then what do we have? You see how important the Bible is? It's important because it tells us reality from God's point of view. Now, I don't know if you think of or thought it that way before, but think of it that way. This is reality. What the Bible says is real. It's what really is true. You know, some of it's not very flattering. How about Jeremiah 17, 9? The heart is deceitful above all things and incurably wicked. That doesn't sound very nice, does it? Is that reality? All you got to do is watch television and see what people want to see on TV. It tells you they want to see that stuff. There must be something in them that, that they, they gravitate toward that because that's what they're like or what they want to be like. Well, so this truth is, is a term. When we think of Scripture and truth, please remember, it is one of the most powerful words you're ever going to run across. It means reality. Thank God this book is true. Because I can follow things. And if I want to know how to do a life is pleasing to God, if I want to live a... It's here. It's true. I can see real. I can see what I need to do. It's real. And if God says it's real and it works, it's going to work. Now, I don't know how much better that you, you can get than that. I don't know anything I could offer that's anywhere that good. Well, how about dreams? Now, this, this is a word that's used in the scripture. And dreams... Now, there's... On point number three... I noticed uh, my proofreader, I'm going to have to take him aside. He's, he's getting to be old. He's so old. I'm going to have to hit him with his own walking stick. I left out an important word, number three. It says, dreams come directly from God, sometimes through an angel. Scripture determines whenever a dream is from God, and the N-O-T is missing, not human opinion. It just says, a dream is from God, human opinion. Huh? 
That doesn't make a lot of sense. So, and that point number three on page three, it's a dream is from God, comma, not, capital letters, not human opinion. Because there are people today, you can go on YouTube, boy, if you want to get entertainment, I don't know if you get edification, but you can sure get entertainment if you go on and listen to some of these people who have dreams and visions of what's going to happen. And some of them are just, you know, I mean, it would be entertaining if it wasn't so wrong and if it wasn't for a serious subject. I, I don't get entertainment from that anymore. I just, some of that stuff I can't even watch. I remember I had a book one time I was supposed to use in conjunction with a class I was teaching. And it was a class on, on heaven. I was doing three months on what do we know about heaven from scripture. And so I was reading this book in conjunction with it because the book was popular at the time. I read about a third of the book and I gave it back to the pastor. And he says, you're done with it already? I said, I've had all I can stand. I told him, I said, I was going to lose my sanctification if I read another page in there. I just couldn't take it. I mean, I really couldn't. And so that's what error can do to you. It really can. That's, that's why if you do watch any of that stuff on YouTube, please take, it with a, please take it with a grain of salt. Because a lot of it probably doesn't even deserve a grain of salt. It just deserves virtual salt or, you know, a virtual reality type of salt. So what are dreams? Well, dreams are a method to, to bring revelation. And God did use that some in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, but let's be careful. If it's to bring revelation, is God bringing us revelation today? No. No. People want to say he is? No. Because if God is bringing revelation today, what does that say about this book? It's not complete. We don't need it. Well, maybe in a way we don't need it, but it definitely is saying, yeah, it's saying it's not complete. Now, there's th- I admit, there are things I would like to know. And I'd like to see somebody actually, these people who say they dream, I'd like to see them actually tell me some things about what goes on between the Church of Philadelphia and the Church of Laodicea. What happens in there and how long a time is it? I want to see some dreamer come up with that. Now, that boy, you give them a, you give them a question like that, nobody's going to bite on that because that will show you that they're fake. They can't answer those kind of questions. Or else I go to Revelation chapter 10 and say, what did the seven thunders say? <laughs> you want to know what's funny? You honestly, folks, you should do this. Go on, go on the internet, look up free Bible resources, and go to Revelation chapter ten. And when you get there, there is about the. Uh, it says in Revelation chapter ten. This is one of the things that's always interested me: is that all the things in the book of Revelation are unsealed except for one particular thing. And it's like I have beat my head against the wall trying to figure out what. And the only thing I've ever done is bu- broken a hole in the wall. Not my head. Too hard for that. So. Yeah, and so if you look at Revelation 10, verse 4, it says, uh, well, let's see. Let's, let's go, uh, well, we'll start at verse 1, I guess, of Revelation 10. And I saw another mighty angel come down from heaven, clothed with a cloud, and a rainbow was on his head, and his face was as it were the sun, and his feet as fillers, pillars of fire. And he had in his hand a little book open. He set his hand on he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land, and he cried with a loud voice as when a lion roars. And when he cried, seven thunders uttered their voices. And when the seven thunders uttered their voices, I was about to write, and I heard a voice from heaven saying unto me, Seal up those things which the seven thunders have said, and write them not. Why? Everything else in this book is revealed. But I'll tell you what, if you want some entertainment, and I'm serious, you'll get a kick out of it. Go to a commentary. And see somebody say, well, yeah, we don't know what they said. Then they'll tell, proceed to tell you what they think they were. They'll proceed to tell you what they are. I'm serious. I, I read a couple commentaries, and I thought, 
These people have got, these people have got more boldness than I'd ever have. I wouldn't do anything that silly. But there you go. So there are some things we don't know, and, and dreams are determined not by human opinion. And the recipients of sleep, and not by human opinion. And please, there's no, there's no need for revelation today. What do we need to know that we don't know? Let me ask you a question, folks. What do we need to know that we don't already know? Do we know about our future? What happens if we die? What happens if we die? What happens then? Anybody? We go to heaven, right? What happens if we don't die? Well, then it's going to have to be that Christ is going to come for the church. Okay, the rapture. Okay, so there's your future. How much more do I need to know? How much more do you need to know about your future? Well, I mean, I would like God to give me a a completely printed out uh, set of instructions of everything that's going to happen every day. This is going to happen today. This is going to happen. That's not going to happen. I know that. I walk by faith. And I know what but the end of the line is. It's either going to be, I'm going to either go, as Dr. Schaefer used to say, I'm either going to go by subway or airmail, but I'm going to go one way or the other. How much more do I need? So why do I need, why does anybody think we need more revelation? You know, I'd love to know where America stands in prophecy. Wouldn't you? But I don't think, I think there's, I think, you can talk to me later about this, I think there's an indication of where we could fit in. Back in the Old Testament, I believe there's an indication. Now that's, that's subject to interpretation, and not everybody would agree with it, but my personal opinion is it would include us. But I'd like to know those But we're not told. Do we need to know those things? That's the problem we have is that we think we need to know all kinds of things. When we have the truth, and well, why do we need to know those things when maybe I'm not doing Romans 6.11, the truth about the sin nature? Oh, I want to know about that. Oh, I don't care about my sin nature. I want to know about that. Wait a minute. What's more important for me? Is it more important for me to live according to what Scripture says? Or is it more important for me to know all kinds of things that I don't have to practice? Well, maybe that's why people want to know them, Pastor. Is they can just know them. They don't have to do anything with them. That would be, that's, that's not, I like that deal. I don't have to do anything. I, I can handle that. So, anyway, so dreams are found in the Old Testament and are translated from a couple words. Now, I gave you the, the uh, there's a Hebrew right there. You can see what the Hebrew letters look like. And it's pronounced as Chalam, if you want to know it. And it's, it's uh, if you have Esort, you can type in H24. 2492, and if you don't have Esau, like I said, you're missing out on a really fun tool that's easy to use. You can find out where the Hebrew is used. You can see the words. You don't even have to know Hebrew, but you can see where the word is used, and there's a tool in there that gives you a basic definition that is not always accurate. It's not always perfect, but it gives you a good idea where to start, and it's free with Esau. You can get all kinds of good stuff on there. So you, you can type in 2492 and you can find it's all 29 times it occurs in the Old Testament. And in the New Testament you have the, the word, you have H, or you have G3677, which is Onar, and it occurs six, six times, all in Matthew. And there's one other word that is translated in Acts uh, 217, dream dreams, which is interesting. You put two words together, dream dreams, a noun and a verb. And so you have that. So when we get to the, if we talk about dreams, the scripture was given that way. Well, we know that there's a guideline for it. It's given by God. It's not by human opinion. And we don't need it today. Why would you need dreams today when you already know? What more does God have to tell me? 
Ah, I wish God would tell me the winning lottery numbers so I could buy a ticket and get rich tomorrow. No, that's not going to happen. So visions. Now, here's another one. Now, this is something, be careful, folks. You know, you're going to hear people that say they have dreams or they have visions, and they're going to claim they do it. But once again, if visions are, uh, are given for revelation, why would we need them today? Why would we have them today when, when we've already got the completed New Testament? What more do we need? Well, visions are presentations of events as actually occurring, but they're only seen by the one to whom the vision was given. Now, if you go back to Numbers 24, you can see that. You, you can see this. This, was, this is, uh, this, this guy here back here, this, uh, Balaam is one of the most, uh, I, in a way, he's, to me, he's almost humorous. Now, I mean, he's not really humorous, but in a way, he's humorous because this, this finagler, I think he told you what he was really after. He said that if Bala, he said if Balak were to give me his house full of silver and gold, I couldn't go beyond what the Lord says. What was the man looking for then? He's looking for silver and gold. He was looking for big money. Uh huh. Good prophet he was. Uh, he's a prophet. So at uh, Numbers twenty-four, and this man was an Old Testament prophet. He was not a smart man. He was a Gentile. Uh, how much he really knew, I don't know. But he was an authentic prophet of God. But he paid for his errors later. It says, When Balaam saw that it pleased the Lord to bless Israel, he went not, as at other times, to seek for enchantments, but set his face toward the wilderness. Oh, no, wait a minute. This is a good prophet? It says, he saw it was to please... He was, Remember, he was hired to curse Israel. And so he said, Well, I am not going to look for the ways that the enchantments look for the way that God communicates with me. I'm not going to do it because I want to curse these people. Because I want that house full of silver and gold. Well, let's see what it has. Balaam lifted up his eyes, and he saw Israel biting in, in his tents according to their tribes, and the Spirit of God came upon him. Aha! The Spirit of God came upon him. There goes that house of silver and gold. It just went out the window. And he took up a parable, and, and Balaam, the son of Beor, has said, and the man whose eyes are open has said, he which heard the words of God and saw the vision of the Almighty falling into a trance but having his eyes open. So here he is, he's in a trance, he has his eyes open and he sees things. But no one else saw what he did. But this is a vision. And so it tells you that a vision was something that you would be awake. And you notice that's point number two on, on top of page four, that they were actually awake when they got a vision. Now, you have, you have a couple words in the Old Testament. You can see them there. And a couple words in the New Testament that you can see them there that are used. And so vision occurs 17 times. But now, and you have your words. But please remember, we don't have visions today because we have completed revelation. And God hasn't promised us to tell us all the things that are going to happen in our lives daily. He hasn't promised to tell us if there's going to be a recession next year that's going to wipe out your 401k. He hasn't promised that. It would be nice to know if that was going to happen, but we're not told those things. So those, And that's usually what happens. These people have those the visions and prophecies. If, you, if uh, there's a friend of... My son-in-law has a, a friend that claims to be a prophet and brings out stuff, and it's usually nonsensical stuff. It has very little to do. It has to do with this is going to happen to so-and-so, this is going to happen to so-and-so. And usually, if it doesn't, you haven't remembered it anyway. You know, I, I remember when I, when I was a kid growing up, this was the fun part of, of living in D.C. The Washington Post used to print 
Jean Dixon. Anybody remember, ever heard of her? Jean Dixon? Some of you have. She was called the Washington Prophetess. And she would, every year, January 1st, give her predictions for the year. And the best she ever did was somewhere towards 50%. Now, that's pretty, pretty impressive for somebody that's just taking a shot in the dark. But what was the standard to determine a prophet in the Old Testament? What was the accuracy? Does anybody remember? 100%. Sorry, Jean. Take half, take half your prophecies back and only claim the ones that were good and you'll, you'll be all right. Well, so you don't have that today. And, and, but people still like that stuff. It's amazing. They'll say those kind of things. Is God going to reveal to us if Joe Biden's going to run for re-election and win? I don't think it makes any difference to us. Because you're not a citizen here anyway, are you? No. You know, I think the best way, and this is, this, is, uh, just, this is an aside, I think the best way to think of our relationship to this world is I look at myself as I'm, a, I'm, I'm here on a green card. Now, if you have somebody here, say, from Mexico frequently, they'll come up and they'll get a green card legally to work here. They're, they're legal, but are they citizens here? No. And they don't get to vote? No. Well, are we really citizens here? It says my citizenship is in heaven. That's where yours is. So, so are, you here, are you here as a permanent resident, or are you here on a green card, so to speak? You're kind of here on a green card, aren't you? And you think of it that way, it makes you feel a little bit better. When this country's going, to, going haywire, you're not a citizen. If it's going downhill, it's not your problem. You can't correct it, but it's not your nation anymore. Oh, I know it is, but in reality, spiritually, just remember, your citizenship is in heaven. That supersedes this one down here. This one, I, I don't know about you folks, I'm going to be glad to give this one up at the rapture. I'm not going to try and hold on to anything. I like Florida, but I'm not going to try and hold on to anything here. Not even one of the alligators. Yeah, I don't think I'm going to take one of those. So, we're going to move on now to the trustworthiness of the Bible. Now, this is important because uh, in all the things that we have to deal with, this may be the most important section of anything we have to say because... The, the trustworthiness of the Bible is critical. Everything we believe is based on the Bible. If the Bible's not trustworthy, then if it's not really truth and reality, then what is it and what have we got and how do we decide what to do and what becomes our standard? Flip a coin. Ah, Pizza Hut this week. The trustworthiness of the Bible. Okay, the trustworthiness of the Bible has been questioned by some who claim to be Christians. And when speaking of errors in Scripture, the following statement is representative of their claims. Now, let's, let, look at this long quote I have in here. I don't like long quotes necessarily, but this one is worth reading. Look what it says. Of course there are errors and, and mistakes in the Bible. The only people who deny the presence of errors and mistakes are those with a strong ideological commitment to the belief that the Bible is somehow inerrant, infallible, or perfect. We can find errors and mistakes everywhere we look in the Bible. Oh, really? Interesting. I, I'd like to see what he had to say, but I didn't go that far in his article. We, we can find those errors because it's a collection of texts written centuries and millennia ago. Well, now that, that part is about the only thing in here so far he said this right. It was written. But now he says not all of the authors agreed. Really? Who did, who, does anybody have an idea? Does anybody, can anybody suggest any two writers of Scripture that didn't agree with each other? I can't think of anybody. It says, not all the writers agreed, and they were ignorant of things humans have learned since then. Scientific errors. Oh, you mean like the Big Bang that they've... <laughs> you know what's funny about the Big Bang, by the way? 
They said when you go out, you can see on 14 billion light years, which is 14 billion times 6 trillion. And if you multiply that out, you get a number that will blow your mind. It's so huge. But they said they could see that far, and that should go back to the very beginning of time. But you know what they found out as they've gone back? They're not all new things. They found there were a lot of old stars back there, too. They shouldn't be there. Not if they were right. If they're right, if that's going back to the beginning, you can't have a star that looks like it's in, in its last phases of life. According to their theory, they find stars and galaxies that look like they're older. But wait a minute. And they say scientific errors? How would they know what an error was? How would these people know? They don't know because they don't know what they're believing. The scientific errors, statements that conflict with facts about the reality we have learned through scientific investigation, like your multiverses. Like dark energy, like dark matter. Did you know that you can't see dark matter? You can't trace it, you can't measure it, you can't see it, but they believe it. Now, how scientific is it to say, I can't see it, I can't touch it, I can't measure it, I can't prove it, but I believe it? It's because it makes a formula work. Exactly, because they're so desperate to get their evolutionary Big Bang idea to work, they had to postulate something that would make up what they're missing. It, their system doesn't work in so many different ways. If you, if you want, and this is just a commercial message, there's a gentleman named Spike Saris. If you want, it's the first program he does, it's, it's called Things You Weren't Told About the, about, about the Universe. And the name is Spike Saris, and it's creation, creation Astronomy. You go there and he goes through all of the different things. He goes through, the, through the, our solar system and points out planet by planet all the things that happen that are contrary to what evolution says should happen. For example, if you say, they say the moon is, is uh, so many billions of years of age. And the problem with that is, is it moves away from the Earth two inches every year. So if you start tracking it back to get to Earth, guess what? In a couple, couple hundred, about 20 or 30,000 years, you have it on the surface of the Earth. So how can it be, how can it have been out there for billions of years if it's, but they still believe that. If you hit them up with that, they might admit it. Scientific errors. You guys have got more scientific errors than you could accuse anybody of having. So it's, state, it's the conflicts with facts about reality we have learned through scientific investigation can be found throughout the Bible because biblical texts are written when, at times when human knowledge about our world was quite limited. We can't, now here's, this is going to come up on a doozy. We can't blame ancient writers for knowing less than we do now but we can blame people alive today for preferring the errors of ancient writers over reliable knowledge developed today. Yeah, just like dark matter and dark energy, huh? Huh? How about that? Phew. How about multiverses? They seriously are believing there's some that possibly there are multiverses. In other words, every possible universe that could be is out there somewhere. Did you know they believe that? I'm serious. I'm serious, they believe that kind of nonsense. And they're saying that we are... Uh, I, guess I, I guess that's what I get for liking astronomy. <laughs> I run into these people that come up with the biggest stupid ideas you've ever heard. Yes? Is there a section, we're, we're trying to remember, is there a section um, in the Bible where it describes the earth as being round? Yes, Job oh. talks about the sphere of the earth. Yeah, he does. It's in Job chapter 22, I think, if you check. Yeah, 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 yeah. I like, your, I like your flat earthers, too. Did you know that there's millions of people that actually believe the flat earth? 
you ought to watch some of this stuff. Now, if you can get, mostly if you go on YouTube to watch them, you'll get people that are ridiculing them. But if you find somebody that seriously believes it, there are people that are intelligent that actually do believe this and will make a case for it. And they're very convincing. And they're, well, they're almost as convincing as telling me that dark energy exists, sort of telling me that that little car in the used car lot was owned by a little old lady that only drove it to church when it's, the wheels are falling off. Yeah. That, that's the kind of, yeah. So... While such, such a position seems illogical, we believe there's a simple reason why some professed believers will hold such a position. And I think 1 Corinthians provides one answer. Now, this is true, and I've seen this, and I've known it to happen, and it does happen a lot. The answer is in 1 Corinthians 1.18. Look what we have printed here, right out of the King, this is out of the King James. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. No one likes to be ridiculed, and that alone is enough for some to make concessions to science and the elite thinkers. And they'll do it. Why? Because they don't want to be ridiculed. Well, I've said it before. Call me an ignoramus. I believe in the Bible. I'm an ignoramus out there, folks. That's good. I don't care what they say. You're going to believe what they say, or you're going to believe what we say. But you know what? I see reality. You know why I know the Bible is real in part? It's truth. Have you ever done wrong? How many people in here can say honestly, and I'm not, this is, I'm not going to embarrass anybody, but they've actually used Romans 6.11 at least one time, but they've reckoned themselves dead to their sin nature. I know Pastor has, I think Scott has, and Dan has, maybe some of the others have. You've said, this comes up from my sin nature, I have this temper that's getting ready to go. I say, wait a minute, I say, no, wait a minute. I died to that in Christ, I'm dead, I'm going to think about what God sees me now. And you do that, and guess what? It works. Now, that is real, but I have yet to see anything about dark matter that looks like it's real to me. You know what's even funnier? When, you, when they, the, the dust cloud idea they have for the solar system, there was this big cloud of dust, and then these things started to stick together, get bigger and bigger and bigger. But you know what happens? Science, science will admit that when you get to a certain size, about this big roughly, the particles travel so fast, when they hit something else, they break back up. So you'd have to have all your planets about this big. So did you know the Earth was this big, Pastor? <laughs> no wonder we seemed like we get, yeah. So I think that that's one of the reasons that you see that is that there are some that are willing to make concession to science because they don't want to be seen as an ignoramus. Well, you know what? I have a, I have a suggestion. For anybody that wants to be non-ridiculed by the world, there's a simple way to solve that problem. Just say that Christ was a good example he came to the world to teach you what you should do, how you should live. Leave out the cross, leave out the death of Christ, leave out sins. And guess what? The world will say, you're not such a bad guy after all. Is that what we want to do? You know, people want to be, people want to be accepted by this God. I, I, for the life of me, I have yet to figure out why I should be concerned about what some unbeliever that is on their way to hell, who has no assurance of their life, who has a miserable life, who shows the works of the flesh, why should I want to be pleasing to somebody like that that is completely the opposite of everything I want to be and everything Scripture says I should be? Why should I be pleasing to that person? Tell me. Can anybody give me a reason for it? Oh, maybe it's because I'm missing a few things up here, a few bricks. Not a brick shy of a full load. I probably only have a couple bricks out of the full load left. No. Now, and we're, well, we're not going to run out of time just yet. However, it should be ob obvious to any honest student of Scripture that once we begin to find quote-unquote errors, we become the judges of what is true, not the Bible. Because if we can say something's an error, we've made a judgment on the Scripture. And so now, 
It makes it easy for men to claim anything they do not like as an error. And boy, do they ever do it. Anything they don't like, even in some professed circles, they don't like it, so they say it's an error. They do something else. Good example. Women behind the pulpit. What does it say, what does it say about First Timothy? Paul said, I don't, I don't permit a woman to teach. They shouldn't be behind the pulpit. Well, but you know what they do? They say, well, you know, that was the first century. And, and people back there, they had a narrow view of women. But we're much more noble now. We're much more giving and sensible. We have a softer, more gentle side, Pastor. We don't even raise our voice when we preach, so we allow women up here. Baloney. That's not, that's not handling the scripture in honesty. But that's a way of being a judge of scripture and you find what you don't like and you say, well, it's an error. There is something that's out of date. It was true for another time, but we've learned since then. I go home and bang my head against the wall, except we're running and I don't want to have to pay the, the landlady for a hole in the wall. So... When, when men do that, it, it uh, makes Scripture no longer the truth because you find errors and you find... So Scripture is no longer the truth. And John 17, 17, what does that mean? Then sanctify them through thy truth, thy word is truth. It becomes a little bit more than Apostle John's opinion. That's all it is, just John's opinion. And so you don't have to really take it seriously because, well, uh, it, it's maybe the truth some places. And there's a whole type of theology out there that says, well, the Bible is the word of God when it speaks to you. Did you know that? It's called neo-orthodoxy. But there's actually a lot of that that infiltrates Christianity and it passes off as being Christian. So the Bible is the truth. It's the word of God when it speaks to you. So that's pretty simple. Anything I don't like, it doesn't speak to me. I don't like that. I want to do this and that. Well, it doesn't speak to me. I, want to, I, won't, I don't mind this. Okay, that speaks to me. Well, so... Further, it should be noted that the writer that we just quoted from uh, doesn't approach the Bible with an open mind. His mind is made up in advance that the Bible has errors. Now, for heaven's sakes, if one begins with a faulty presupposition, their only conclusion is going to be a faulty conclusion because it starts with a faulty presupposition. If you approach the Bible with, it, it's, with the attitude it's just merely the work of men and therefore has errors, can we expect them to come away believing the Bible is the inerrant word of God? <laughs> that's the, the, their scholarship then becomes and that's the, such scholarship of those who would think that is purely un, uh, the work of an unsaved mind this, this, this stuff here if this person that wrote this claims to be a believer that quote that we just had there I would, I would question how that could be a believer they've just said that when scripture says it's the truth it's not the truth it might be some places but it's not the truth well then how do we decide what parts do we decide that we like Ah, do you realize what a mess you have on your hands? People, oh, people, but the only thing you can get some people to agree on is they all like the Beatitudes on the Sermon on the Mount. But then they misread those because they won't, they won't be literal and say if your eye offends you, then you pluck it out, your hand offends you, you cut it off. There'll be a lot of blind people in the church. <laughs> They're blind already, but maybe they'd be physically blind on top of being spiritually blind. So, bottom of page four, last paragraph. The only way that such a vital truth subject as bibliology can be approached is by taking scripture literally. It is essentially 
It is essentially true that one can make the Bible say almost anything and even find contradictions unless the Word of God is taken literally. Here's, here's one Dr. Schaefer used to use in seminary. I always liked this one. He said, Judas went out and hanged himself. Go and do that likewise. <laughs> Thought of the Bible. Yeah, so you can, you can take it out of context. And a consistent little interpretation will result in a dispensational approach to Scripture and will clear away so-called contradictions. Please notice, I didn't say we interpret the Bible dispensationally. I said because we're literal, we will come up being dispensational. What do we mean by dispensational? Well, we've, we've talked about this before, but in a nutshell, it just simply means that God had different sets of rules for people to live by at different times. And you can see that because after the flood, all of a sudden, man was told he could eat meat. And before the flood, they didn't eat meat. And, he was, and they were told to put the murderer to death. Well, they didn't do that before the flood. What about Cain? Cain was a murderer. Did they put Cain to death? No, they didn't. So you have a contradiction? No. You've, if you take the Bible literally, you can see there was a change in how God dealt with humanity. And that's really all dispensationalism in a, in a nutshell, is a set of rules by which a part of human race or the whole human race is governed. And you, you, that can change. And so if we take the Bible literally, we will see that there are disp we have a dispensational approach and there's a lot of so-called errors that will just go away. Now, please remember, if, if, you, if you really want to see some things that are helpful, that section, that the, the pages I gave you at the end, there's, it's uh, printed out on pages, two-sided, but it gives you, and this is really, really, really wonderful, about this is Norman Geisler, who is a, a good scholar, and it's your addendum, and it's page one of your addendum, it's, are there errors in the Bible? This guy explains a lot of things that will just answer most of the questions anybody has. And when you look at that, you know, one simple thing is true. You know, the Bible records some things that are not true. Well, Satan said to Eve, said to Eve you, you, won't, you surely won't die. Was that true? No, but the Bible records the truth of, of his lie. It was what he said was a lie, and the Bible records it truly. So the Bible does have errors in it, but they're human errors that are recorded truly. Like when Satan said, you're not going to die. Or when the Jews said that you're not, to Jesus, you're not the son of God. They, they, had, they said it, they did it, and it, it's recorded, but it doesn't make it right. So, it's a consistent literal, literal interpretation will result in a dispensational approach to the Bible and clear away so-called contradictions, many, many of them. I have any so-called, it should probably be on that line, it will clear away, clear away many so-called contradictions. So put an M in front of that, any. Probably should be many. I don't know that necessarily clear every one of them away. Some of them are just, uh, you can't convince anybody of. They, they're not going to be convinced no matter what you tell them. Therefore, we can say that the Bible is not only trustworthy, it is a God-breathed and errant, infallible revelation of God to man. As we shall see in this study, the original autographs of Scripture were God-breathed, inerrant, infallible revelation of God to man. But by divine providence, we have accurate copies of the, of the originals so that we can say with assurance that we have God's infallible, inerrant revelation. Now, we're going to stop here because we're going to get into some stuff that, that uh, I, I love textual criticism is what it's called we're getting into, where it talks about textual problems. Uh, we're going to save that because that, that's, that's fun, and uh, I know... 
Dan and Pastor and I all love to start talking about textual problems. Oh, text the test. Oh, love doing that stuff. But it's about as beneficial to the average person as talking about dark matter. <laughs> well, it's more, probably more beneficial than dark matter, but I mean, it's about as relevant in a, in a way. 